peeps. You're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, the baking podcast from the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books, including my latest, Snackable Bakes. Each Saturday, I'm hanging out with the sweetest bakers around and taking a deep dive into their signature bakes. I'm so happy to kick off season four of our podcast with today's guest, Melissa Weller, one of the top bakers in New York. Melissa is known for her sticky buns, bagels, and babka. She's worked at highly regarded places like Per Se, Roberta's, and Sullivan Street Bakery. And she was a chef partner at High Street on Hudson and the co-owner and co-founder of Sedell's. Melissa joins me to talk about her culinary journey and guides me through the recipe plus all the tips and tricks for making her beloved chocolate babka. The recipe can be found in her cookbook, A Good Bake, and at cherrybomb.com. Stay tuned for my chat with Melissa. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter for supporting today's show. Get ready to savor the season with Plugra Butter. With the holidays right around the corner, I know so many of you are planning what baked goods you'll be making. Maybe you're thinking about a pumpkin chiffon pie with an all-butter crust for Thanksgiving, or buttery sugar cookies decorated with royal icing for that next cookie swap, or some light-as-air gougere for New Year's Eve. The pastry chefs and bakers I interview for this podcast are the best in the business, and they all agree on one thing when it comes to baking. Ingredients matter. Plugra Premium European-style butter is the perfect butter for your next baking project because it contains 82% butter fat. Also, it's slow-churned, making Plugra more pliable and easy to work with. I've been using Plugra ever since my first professional baking job. My go-to are the unsalted sticks. I get to control the amount of salt in the recipes, and the sticks come individually wrapped, perfect for precise measurements. Sticks or solid, salted or unsalted, whichever you prefer, Plugra Premium European-style butter is the ultimate choice. Ask for Plugra at your favorite grocery store or dash over to Plugra.com for a store locator and some delicious holiday recipes. That's Plugra.com. Today's episode is also presented by California Prunes. I'm a California Prunes fan when it comes to smart snacking. Funnily enough, at the same time we started this podcast, my doctor told me how good prunes are for your gut, your heart, and even your bones. Prunes contain dietary fiber and other nutrients to support good gut health, potassium to support heart health, and vitamin K, copper, and antioxidants to support healthy bones. So prunes became a daily snack of mine. I have them in my cabinet at home, I put them in smoothies, and I bring them with me when I'm on the go because they are perfectly portable. Now let's talk about my true love, baking. California prunes are a great addition to baked goods, especially this time of year. They work beautifully in recipes with rich and complex flavors like espresso, olives, and chilies. And they enhance the flavor of warm spices, toffee, caramel, and chocolate. Consider adding prunes to scones, gingerbread, coffee cake, or any baked good that calls for dried fruit. If you're looking to make some holiday showstoppers, like a fruitcake you make ahead of time, keep prunes in mind when you're assembling the dried fruit you need. They add just the right texture and flavor. Be sure to check out the California Prunes website at californiaprunes.org for recipes and more. That's californiaprunes.org. If you're in or around Los Angeles on Monday, November 6th, I have some sweet news. She's My Cherry Pie is doing a special live podcast event at Ray Publique to celebrate our show and all things baked goods. Join me and Team Cherry Bomb for networking, a panel conversation, and of course, some delicious treats. The event is from 1 to 3.30, 
Tickets are $30 and include a copy of the latest Cherry Bomb magazine, plus bites, coffee, and tea. Come meet other Bomb Squad members and learn how bakers, pastry chefs, and entrepreneurs in L.A. are mixing it up and making it happen. Tickets are on sale now at cherrybomb.com or click on the link in our show notes. I hope to see you there. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter, California Prunes, and Ghirardelli for supporting our event. Let's check in with today's guest. Melissa, so excited to have you on She's My Cherry Pie and to talk chocolate babka with you and so much more. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Yay! You are frequently described as a master baker and are known for your incredible old-world baked goods like babka and bagels and sticky buns and more. And I think it's fair to say that your mastery is born in part from the circuitous route you took to baking. And so first, I was hoping you could explain what it means to be a master baker and then tell us a little bit about the journey you took to being one, which notably includes both chemical engineering and an easy-bake oven. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I should say I don't consider myself a master baker. I think that's because I'm such a perfectionist. And also, I think that there's a, a formal test that you take to become a master baker, which I have not done. Just like if you're an engineer, there's a test to become like a certified engineer. So I, don't, I never really think, oh, I'm a master baker. But I do think that because of my background, I am very precise and exacting about how I approach my baking. My background is I studied engineering, chemical engineering in college. And I think that sort of relates to my personality or maybe my personality was shaped and my baking was shaped by studying engineering where you start out and you're always doing some kind of lab work, lab testing. And so when you're testing something, it's sort of like testing something when you're trying to figure out a baking recipe. You start out with, okay, I think this is the formula that I'm going to use to make the babka. I'm going to see how it works. I'm going to go through all of the steps and then and maybe we all do this as bakers, go back and say, hey, oh, that didn't work and why not? Or it's too doughy in the center. Did I bake it to the right temperature? And I think because of that, that sort of has shaped my my path towards wanting to perfect things and and get them right according to my palate and sort of my vision of what I want to make. Will you tell us, because I know the baking came later in life, post-chemical engineering, but tell us about the Easy Bake Oven and your mom and baking cookies. My mom was an elementary school teacher, super-duper creative, was always doing crafts, sewing, gardening, and cooking and baking at home. And so she always had me get involved in everything. I learned how to sew in elementary school. I really gravitated towards the baking part of it, and so she set me up with an easy-bake oven. And do they exist today? I don't I know. I don't even know. But all I remember were you took the cookie dough. It was always sugar cookie dough cut out thin and you put it on this little tray and you pushed it through the oven and I think it had a light bulb that heated up and then it came out the other side. I don't even remember if it it had to have baked it all the way through, but I don't think I cared as a kid how it came out. I was just like happy to like bake, eat the cookies after I baked them. What's more rewarding than that? I love that. And I was hoping you could describe your dessert style. Yes. Finished culinary school in two thousand four at the French Culinary Institute. And I immediately started working at Babo. And I liked the dessert menu that Gina De Palma had created at Babo. And it, it had some savory components. And back in 2004, it was hard to find savory components, even like olive oil in desserts, herbs like thyme and rosemary. That was all savory at that point. 
And so I gravitated towards her menu. I liked what she did. It was unfussy. It was unfussy. It was very simple components put together in a very elegant way. Very, And it was about the taste. It was less about the presentation. The presentation was rustic. It wasn't this like precise, like plated dessert. But I mostly liked the flavor combinations that she created. And then I went on to primarily focus on baking bread and doing things with yeast. And so Sullivan Street Bakery was essentially learning how to bake bread, learning all of the steps in a professional bakery, how to go from A to B. And then at Per Se, I was the head baker. And that was a very intense time for me to focus on learning a lot of new recipes, again, all with yeast and flavor components. And the breads had to be specific for a specific dish, like the cheese bread had to complement the cheeses. It couldn't have an ingredient that overshadowed the cheeses or that that was anywhere else on the menu. And I think after those three experiences, and I, I believed in like working for a while before I tried my own thing. So I got to try my own thing at Roberta's. And that was the first time where I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I had all of these ideas and, and visions of what I wanted to do. So you're known for creating these highly sought-after artisan breads and bagels, and you've said that it was maybe your love of, like, hard sourdough pretzels from childhood that may have at least led to the bagel making. But how about the babka and the sticky buns and the other old-world baked goods? What led you to them? I've read that it might be an obsession with breakfast pastries. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's an excellent question. When I left Roberta's, I was ready to open my own bakery, and the Williamsburg Smorgasburg outdoor market was happening. And I thought, I'll just do this until I open my own bakery. And a friend told me, oh, well, you have to have something that's signature there. You can't just get in selling all sorts of things. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to sell bagels. I, I love to make bagels, but I felt that I didn't really know enough. Like there's a big part of history that is around bagels. And I didn't know as much as I wanted to. And so I was sort of thinking when I had that stand, like, what else can I make that would go with the bagels? You know, I started curing my own locks and making bagel sandwiches and schmears. But then when I left, I I did the smorgasburg for the summer of, I think it was 2013. Can you tell people just in case they don't know what the smorgasburg is? Yes. It's an outdoor market in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, my neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's sort of like a food bonanza of different entrepreneurial spirits trying to get started in the food industry. And it's a great way for them to first get started and get their name out there. And so I thought that was a good idea for me at the time with the bagels. And I think it was a good idea because I met my partners through the Williamsburg Smorgasburg. And together we formed a partnership and we started working on it literally 10 years ago in the fall of 2013. And we started to talk about what goes with bagels. We're going to open up this bagel bakery, restaurant, what will go with the bagels? And I'd done enough research at that point to think, okay, well, babka goes with bagels because it's old world. It's it's Jewish, and you could say Jewish inspired too. And I'm like, well, what else goes with bagels? And I just kept going down the list of all of the things in my head that I'd been reading about and dreaming of and visiting. I think I went to Russ and Daughters to see what they had at the time. And I brought home their cinnamon babka. And I was like, how did they make this? This is very interesting. I want to sort of figure out how they made it. And that's sort of where it got started. Let's talk a little bit about chocolate babka background. 
just in case people don't know, can you tell us what a babka is? A babka is a sweet yeasted cake, essentially. It's related to, and this may be a far out cake too, a kugelhopf. It's, it's all a family that comes from Europe, most likely Eastern Europe, of sweet yeasted doughs, usually filled with something. And it was one of those yeasted sweet breads that would be made at home. We should mention that this incredible chocolate babka is also the cover of A Good Bake. And it's this incredible picture with this Johnny Miller, right? Was your photographer incredible? With this thick chocolate glaze dripping off of it. Is that traditional to have a glazed Ah, babka? That's a good question, too. I think up until that point, the There was no glaze on babka. It was like cookie crumbs. It was like a crumble, like a streusel. Yes. It was like a thick streusel. And I remember with my partners for Sedell's, we tried streusel, but the streusel would sort of crumble. And we decided that maybe there was, is there another more elegant way we said to ourselves? And I think we came up with the idea of doing a glaze on the babka instead of, instead of streusel. And I remember this goes back before I even started my culinary career, Bobka in the city, I just remember out on Long Island, it was streusel on the top. Yeah. And so the magic for the cover of the cookbook, it, it was Johnny Miller's idea. To, he's like, just glaze it and I'll take a bunch of shots as you're glazing it and the, the glaze is going to fall down the sides. And so that was fun. We'll be right back. Today's episode is also presented by Ghirardelli Professional Products. Ghirardelli is America's number one premium chocolate company. When baking and making desserts is your passion and your profession, you want premium ingredients. Whether putting your own spin on chocolate chip cookies, building your entremet with a layer of chocolate ganache, or whipping up some chocolate buttercream for your next layer cake, you want a chocolate that takes your creations to the next level. The Ghirardelli team selects the highest quality beans from around the world and maintains high standards throughout the entire chocolate-making process. They roast only the cacao nib, not the entire bean, which results in a more consistent and intense chocolate flavor. They also refine the chocolate and conch it for hours to ensure a velvety melting sensation without bitter off notes. No matter what kind of chocolate you need, from milk to dark to semi-sweet, and whatever form, chips, mini chips, wafers, Ghirardelli Professional Products has you covered. You can find Ghirardelli Professional Products at your favorite kitchen or baking supply stores and on Amazon. For more, visit Ghirardelli.com backslash professional. You can request product samples by filling out the Ghirardelli contact form. Visit our show notes for the link. And be sure to use referral code CHERRYBOMB. If you're going to be in New York on Saturday, November 11th, I'd love for you to join me at Cherry Bomb's third annual Cooks and Books Conference at Ace Hotel Brooklyn. I'm moderating a live She's My Cherry Pie episode with three wonderful bakers and cookbook authors, Samantha Senevaratna, Rose Wild, and Yasia Refi. We'll talk about their new books, their favorite bakes, and what they're making this holiday season. Following our panel, there's a special demo and talk with Abby Belingit of the Dusky Kitchen. Abby will be making the adobo chocolate chip cookies from her book, Mayumu. Tickets for all sessions are $20 and on sale now. Check out cherrybomb.com for the full schedule. Now back to our guest. Now we're going to talk about the recipe, do a deep dive. So first things first, we're going to make the dough. So we're going to whisk some all-purpose flour and some sugar and some instant yeast. And I had a couple of questions. First of all, is there a style of whisk that you like? I like one that's not too much of a piano whisk. Do you know, like where the where the metal tongs or tines are so tight together that things get stuck in the middle, like a balloon whisk or something. Just like an all-purpose whisk is usually fine. Mm-hmm. 
Is there a brand of all-purpose flour that you always turn to? I always go to King Arthur all-purpose flour. I do. So we're whisking some all-purpose flour, a little bit of sugar, and we have some instant yeast. And I have two questions. First of all, why instant versus active? And then also, are you always like an instant person? I'm always an instant person, unless it's not available. Mm -hmm. Per se, we only used fresh yeast. Mm -hmm. At Sullivan Street Bakery, we used instant yeast. You know, when I left per se, it was like, well, what? And I was doing sourdough, so then that wasn't yeast. What, What choice? And so... At Roberta's, it was more more efficient to use instant yeast. You could buy a case. You could keep it in your, your walk-in until you needed it. And then we would make some things like the sticky bun logs, and we'd freeze them, and we'd pull them out as we needed. And what we learned was that over time, the instant yeast will not hold up in the freezer. The sticky bun log wouldn't last for us like more than like six days with just regular instant yeast. And so I had taken a baking class through was the Bread Bakers Guild. It was in Minnesota, and I had learned that the Osmotolerant Instant Yeast, SAF Gold is the brand that I like to go with. And SAF makes two different types of instant yeast. They make gold, which is osmotolerant, and they make the red regular. The osmotolerant yeast doesn't react with the sugar in the dough the way that the regular instant yeast does. Now, I've also used active, so it would, it proofs better. You get a better, bigger proof because the regular instant yeast gets sort of hung up on all the sugar in the dough. So if you were just using regular instant yeast, which I have used interchangeably with active dry, but if you're using that, it affects how the rate of the loaf proofing. Because I thought I could get away with it for like a holla or I was trying different yeasts at one point and I'm like, it's not proofing the same way. Can anyone? I've never even seen the gold. Can anyone get the gold? You can't find it in a grocery store as far as I've noticed. A lot of bakeries will have it. When it's just me baking at home, I generally order it online. And was the is it the gold that you ended up using to be able to freeze things? Yeah, I oh, like I always go with the gold because it can be used interchangeably with the red. And then also, if you're an active dry yeast person where you have to bloom it, that's because the dead yeast coating, the active yeast is pretty thick on the active dry. I usually use those and replace one to one. I have these strange formulas in my head for replacing yeast. If it's fresh yeast, there's more water content in the yeast. So I think I I pretty much have or multiply the amount of fresh yeast by 0.4, which is a little less than half to get the instant yeast amount. And then if I just have active dry yeast, I, I bloom it in the water and I use it one for one with the instant. So we're whisking our flour, our sugar, our instant yeast, our fine sea salt. I use the French balen in the blue cylinder. I use the fine sea salt because that's generally the way bakeries order salt. They order them in the 50-pound bag. So kosher salt comes in the boxes. And so for a baker who's using a lot of salt in their large bakery, it's more efficient to just get a 50-pound bag of salt, which is usually like refined sea salt. So we're going to whisk all of these ingredients together in a large bowl. So then in a bowl of a stand mixer with a dough hook, and I assume it's a KitchenAid mixer you have at home. That's what I have at home, yeah. We're going to add whole milk. We're going to add an egg and an egg yolk. Is the yolk there for a little moisture, for extra fat? Richness, Richness. extra fat. Yeah. 
We're going to add the dry ingredients, and then we're going to mix on low speed for three minutes to create a homogenous dough. Then we're going to increase the speed to medium, mix for five to eight minutes until the dough completely wraps around the hook and cleans the side of the bowl. And I was struck by this because I feel like so frequently it doesn't exactly clean. It's still clinging. And is this dough the way that you've created it? Is it one that really will? That'll be on your hook when it's ready. I think it does wrap around. I think because this is before you add the butter. Yes. Before you add the butter, it should wrap around. It should be dry enough that it wraps around the hook. But if it doesn't, don't worry. Just keep moving on to the next step. So with the mixer still running on medium, we're going to add some super soft unsalted yes. butter. Tell us about that. You don't want just room temp, right? It has to... It has to be really soft. Yeah. And, and I've had I've had different assistants in the bakery, and the butter's not soft enough, and then it never really melts into the dough. And I'm like, ugh. And so some, sometimes, and I, this isn't how the recipe is written, but this is what I've done in different bakeries, sometimes I'll have them add the butter at the beginning, which is sort of counterintuitive because you're always like, don't you need to develop the gluten? But from there, it develops plenty so that you could add the soft butter with all of the other ingredients and mix it that way also. That's kind of a nice tip. It, it helps a lot whenever, if you're left... I can't tell you the number of times there have been chunks in the dough of the butter that doesn't quite go into the dough, and yeah. now the dough is too soft. It doesn't want to mix in. This way gets rid of that, that problem. And that's a great tip. So we're going to add our super soft unsalted yes. butter, mix until the butter is mixed in, no butter chunks, 5 to 10 minutes. And then we're going to stop to wipe down the dough hook and clean it once or twice with a wet hand, which I loved that tip. Oh. I've never done that. That's such a good yeah. idea. You just kind of soak your hand and then pull off yeah, the dough. Yeah, I think it's a baker thing. Yeah. You know, anytime you don't want – because if you're working in a professional bakery, the number of times that dough is going to stick to your hands and you have yeah. to rinse it off, it gets to be too much. I yeah. had a dermatologist look at my hands once <laughs> and she's like, oh my God, what are you doing? Because your hands just get dried and cracked. Yeah. So if you wet your hand with water, like things don't stick to it. And that goes with like shaping dough too. It's like a great way to not get dough to, to stick to I your hands. So now we're going to ferment the dough and you have a great explanation for why the or I don't know if it's an explanation, but you label that first rest the fermentation and the second one the proofing. Can you explain that difference to people? The yeast is doing the same thing during the two steps. During the fermentation step, it's fermenting the dough. The dough is in bulk. I guess it comes from my background. We've always called that the fermentation. And then once the dough is shaped... The yeast is still doing the same thing. It's just been redistributed in the shape, and it's still munching on the damaged starches and producing carbon dioxide and, and raising the finished product. And I've just always called that proofing. So we remove the bowl from the mixer. We're going to wipe the dough hook clean with our wet hand. We're going to cover the bowl with a clean kitchen towel or plastic wrap and set it in a warm place to ferment for two hours. I thought this was interesting. We're going to turn the dough after about an hour by using a wet hand to fold the top edge down two-thirds of the way, then fold the bottom edge up to meet the top edge, which i that's sort of a traditional way to mm -hmm. sort of make for a topped ball of dough. But I wondered two things. Do we flip it over after we make that shape in the bowl? And why do we do it at this one-hour point? One-hour point, it's good to do it like halfway through the fermentation. Mm -hmm. So it ferments for two hours. That's pretty standard. So it's nice to like redistribute the yeast halfway through. And I'll be honest, I can't remember if I called for flipping it upside you down. You don't. And I wondered uh, if that was a choice or I know sometimes. It's a choice. It's a choice for this type of dough because I don't think it needs it. 
If it was 100% sourdough, I definitely would do that. Okay, good to know. Because yeah. it needs that extra help. But this has the commercial yeast in it, so it's already got a lot of, and it's already folding. You're already sort of helping the gluten out yeah. that it doesn't necessarily need to be flipped upside down. Once it's fermented for those two hours, we're going to place the dough on a sprayed parchment-lined baking sheet. Ah, I think it's like an aluminum sheet tray with the rim all around yep. the side. It's pretty standard in any restaurant or bakery, and so that's what I have at home. Yep. And spraying the parchment is because the dough is really sticky that it will stick to the parchment okay. if you don't spray the parchment. Okay. And we're going to use our hands to gently coax or pat the mound of dough into a square, put the baking sheet in the refrigerator to chill for at least two hours. Could we leave it on the counter for these two hours or you want it chill? It should be chill. Okay. There's enough yeast in it. It doesn't need to be left out longer. Okay. It needs to be cold because the cold is what's going to help you roll it out. Yep. If you don't make it cold, it's going to be really challenging to roll out. And then you're going to end up using more flour. And then if you use more flour, it's going to make the, the end product dry. Yep. Oh, and I thought this was a great tip. Even if you're not going to make it right away, wrap after it's chilled because then the dough won't stick to the plastic wrap. Yes, yes. I thought that was a great tip. And this time in the fridge for this additional two hours is still our fermenting period. Yeah, it's still doing stuff. Yep. And gluten's still forming, which is why, you know, if you're not flipping it upside down, over this long period of time, gluten is still doing something. Yeah. Fermentation is still happening. Yeah. While the dough is fermenting, we're going to make the filling. I love this, all of this. I'm too excited. But anyway, we're going to process some homemade chocolate shortbread, which is actually a recipe in your book, into crumbs. Or you can use store-bought mm -hmm. chocolate cookies. But I wondered, I don't know if you've heard the news, but Nabisco is no longer making its chocolate cookies. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Is there another cookie that you would recommend? I think it's just about what you can find. Okay. Maybe the Archway Dutch chocolate soft sugar cookies. Yep, something Those like that. probably work. Great. Yeah. Great. And I assume, I mean, it might change the flavor, but in a pinch, you probably could use a regular shortbread yeah, totally. cookie, like mm -hmm. a Walker's or something, yeah. or make your own. So we're going to process the chocolate shortbread into crumbs and in a food processor, Cuisinart or a Roboku or... I think a Cuisinart yeah. is just fine. Yep. And it's fitted with a metal blade. We got our crumbs. And then we're going to make a double boiler using a small soft pan. We're going to fit a bowl on top, make sure the water's not touching the bottom. Basically, bring the water to a gentle simmer. You're going to place milk chocolate, bittersweet chocolate, chopped if in bar form or chunks, and unsalted cube butter in the bowl of the double boiler and melt. Why two different types of chocolate? When I work in a bakery, I try not to have too many different chocolates on hand at one time. It brings your ingredient costs up. Like if you always have all, like you have 10 different types of chocolate, like that's probably not necessary. So usually I have like a milk chocolate, a bittersweet chocolate, and I usually don't bake with semi-sweet mm. chocolate. But I was thinking, well, if that's what you have at home, doesn't milk chocolate plus bittersweet chocolate equal semi-sweet chocolate? So it probably does. So if you wanted to substitute, I'm sure it would be fine and that, delicious. That's good to know. With this butter, we're going to simmer until everything has melted, stirring occasionally with a heat-proof rubber spatula. I like the ones with the more graduate, like it tapers to a like a finer point mm -hmm. at the end where you can really get around the bowl. Mm -hmm. So as long as it's heat-proof, you're good. So we're going to scrape down the chocolate on the sides of the bowl to make sure it melts evenly and doesn't burn, turn off the heat. We'll remove the bowl from the double boiler, and we're wiping the bottom to make sure no water drips. Are we still worried about seizing our chocolate, or is it just 
keeping it clean in the kitchen? What's I think the- it's just keeping it clean in the kitchen. If you take off the bowl and you're walking barefoot and oof, then the hot oof. water drips, you're like, ouch. Yeah, yeah. smart. So now we're going to add our cookie crumbs and some mild-flavored honey to our chocolate. Buy 100% pure honey and look for the pr- the best price because yeah. it's pretty expensive these days. And why honey? What is honey doing? to Since we already have something sweet from the chocolate, what does the honey do for our filling? Honey is an inverted sugar, and so it will not crystallize and it will stay lucid, if you will. So it helps contribute to the filling not getting too set up and mm-hmm. like a brownie. So we'll stir to combine. We'll set our filling aside to cool. When we use it, we're going to want to make sure it's still warm Mm -hmm. and spreadable. So now we're going to take out our dough from the refrigerator, and we're going to roll it. We're going to spray either a 9 by 4 inch Pullman. Just in case people don't know, can you describe what a Pullman pan is? Pullman has straight sides. I think I'm enamored by it because of the straight sides. It doesn't have tapered outsides. They're like straight and even. You know me, precise and straight and even are all things that I love. And so I like to bake it in the Pullman loaf pan, but not everybody has one. I've definitely baked them in like a 9 by 5 loaf pan, like the same loaf pan you would bake a banana bread in. That works fine. I have Pullman loaf pans. I think I have USA brand Pullman loaf pans. That might Is that one of the easiest ones you can buy online? Yeah. I like their pans. Yeah. Yeah. I have some. I also, when I, I'm the same way, despite not being a chemical engineer, <laughs> I love when I use a loaf pan, I hate it if it yeah. has slopey sides. I want everything. I even like an eight and a half by four and a Me half too. inch better. Me too. Because I just love the way yeah. the baked loaf looks. Me too. And I yeah. like the taller, it gets taller Me that too. way, it doesn't spread out. Me too. So we're going to remove our fermented dough and quickly, so it doesn't get too warm, roll it with a floured pin. French rolling pin, not with tapered sides, with straight sides. That works best for me. Others would be comfortable with one of those ball-bearing rolling pins. That's fine, too. Whatever works best for you. I find I get more pressure when I use the French rolling pin. We're going to roll it into a 16-inch square on a floured work surface. But I did read this about you, and I feel like we're (laughs) connected this way. What do you think about rolling out on a silicone, like, rolling mat? Like a, am I pronouncing it right? A wool pot? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. So for for people that don't know, because I use those kinds of mats all the time to keep my kitchen clean and because you use less flour. Can you tell people what that is? Because it's a great tool. It's like a great tool. Just things don't stick to it. Not as much. You still need to use a little flour, but they don't stick like they would on your regular surface. And it's easy to clean up afterwards. I just sort of brush it and then roll it up. Yeah, these mats are are fabulous. So you're rotating your dough as you roll. You're rolling from the center outwards. And then at this point, are we refrigerating again for about 30 minutes before spreading the filling? Maybe only if the dough is a little too warm at this point? For me, I can roll it out really fast. Yeah. So I don't. I wouldn't refrigerate it. But when I've taught somebody, it takes a while to get that precision to get it out to 16 by 16. So usually the length of time it takes to roll out is longer. And so the dough does get warmed up. So I think it's because once you put the filling on, you have to roll it and pick it up. And if it's already soft, it's going to be difficult to handle. So I would recommend refrigerating it. Yeah. 
Now, either refrigerated or not, depending on our kitchen and how fast we worked, we're going to fill the bob cup. We're going to use an offset spatula. Whatever you yep. have. Yep. Use an offset spatula. To Big sp- or small, like whatever you have at home, I found. I'm like, oh, I only see the little one. I'm going to use the little one today. Yep. That's okay. I kind of love the little one yeah, better than too. the big one. It just, yeah, I like the way it fits little, in my hand. So we're going to use an offset to spread two-thirds of the warm filling over the dough, taking care to spread to the edges, right? We're not really interested in a perimeter. No. Spreading a little bit at a time. Now we're going to shape the babka. So we'll gently roll the dough or the square away from us to form like a fat roll. And there's something fun about saying form fat roll. I don't know. I just like, I love the way it rolls off the tongue. And then we'll pick up our roll and we will kind of with two hands gently pull it apart to elongate it, mm-hmm. set it down and cut it in half. Do you use a chef's knife, a bench scraper? Chef's knife. Chef's or knife. Ben- bench scraper would work. And you're cutting it each piece approximately 10 inches. Now, mm-hmm. up to this point, that's very traditional with a bobka, right? Yeah. It's one, and that's how yeah. we're getting our two strips or the strips that we'll use to make our braid. So now we're going to spread. This is so interesting and a little confusing. So I hope <laughs> I do it justice. This is my obsessive compulsiveness coming out. Oh, I, I think it's genius. <laughs> but basically, at this point, we're going to spread the remaining third of the filling across. Now, I wasn't sure if it was just the top or also the sides of one half of the babka and then place the second, I'm calling it the naked half, <laughs> on top of the filling covered one to form an X. Yes. Okay. So we're going to twist the ends. So I'm picturing my X. We're now going to take the two and the V and then the inverted V and twist those two ends together. Mm-hmm. I just wrote in my notes, is this some genius bobka making technique? And you've written that adding that layer of filling between the rolled bobka dough helps keep the layers separate. Oh, that's right. That's the obsessive When the, the bobka bakes, out. resulting in the more layered bobka. Yeah. Is that how you get your incredible interior? Yeah, you don't have to. Now, I've seen an old school, like, where they don't cut it in half, and they just sort of fold it and twist it and put it in the pan, and that turns out fine. But I think for me, I'm like, well, I first started making it just twisting it, cutting it, and looking at it, and I kept thinking that doesn't look like the bobka that I was looking at on in photos. That's not the one that Russ and Daughters has where it's all those thin layers. And I'm like, how can I get layers to pop out more? And I think I started putting some of the filling between the layers because if you're just rolling it up and you've got dough on dough, then that sort of gets lost as it's proofing. And I'm like, what if I just covered some of it more with the filling and then twisted it up and then you don't have dough on dough, you have dough, chocolate dough. And I just kept thinking... More layers, the better. It's so smart. And it does give you, you don't have, just what you said, you don't have dough on dough. And is it, does the filling, like, because we're going to put an egg wash on this, does the filling almost dry that exterior, does it kind of dry out in a way? Or does it, like, is it a Mm -hmm. messy business trying to roll up something that you just It's not, no, usually, and if you work quickly and you've had your babka dough in the refrigerator, usually when you put the warm chocolate on it, doesn't seize up, but it sets up. It's not like this messy, oozy chocolate thing anymore. I love that. I thought that was so brilliant. But anyway, now we're going to pick up our bobka with two hands, place it into our prepared. I love that you say two hands in case someone thought, whoops, <laughs> and then they drop it on the ground. And we're gonna, now it proofs. So we'll mm-hmm. cover the bobka with a clean kitchen towel or plastic wrap, set it in a warm place to proof for two to three hours until the loaf doubles in size. 
Bake it at around 350. Make an egg wash. And I love that I make an egg wash the same as you with egg and salt in a small bowl. And then brush the wash generously over the surface, which is going to give us shine and browning. Uh, yeah. Place the babka loaf on the center rack. Bake for about 45 to 50 minutes until deeply golden brown. And you have us rotate halfway through the baking mm-hmm. time. I always rotate, which I learned when I worked in a professional bakery. Do you always rotate? Like at home, do you rotate? No. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes, too, if I think it's too, especially professionally, if it's like too heavy of a pan yeah. where rotating is going to be almost be hazardous. Yeah. Like think if you have like this pan of really heavy loaves and you have a baker who's like lifting it up high. Yeah. And they have to pull it out. Then they have to find a flat surface to lay it on. And I'm talking like a full-size sheet tray, which is filled like with 20. like 12 loaves on yeah, it. Yeah. I'm like, it gets too heavy and yeah. it's too hot. And I feel like it's too dangerous. I usually don't. And, yeah. and maybe the back is browned a little bit more than the front ones. But I feel like that's a safety call and yeah. an efficiency call, and I'm like, it's not worth it. It's not that much of a difference. But I usually do rotate as much as I can. Yeah. I have to do it at home just because of hot spots in my yeah. oven, and it's just not worth it. Yeah. But it feels so liberating when I don't. I can't I know, believe I put it true. in, and I never took it out. Or I'm never, you I'm know, not going to rotate yeah, this time. Exactly. It feels like some ra- I'm being <laughs> a radical. So we'll make the glaze while the babka bakes and then glaze it. The glaze is similar to the filling. It's milk chocolate. Uh, yeah. It's bittersweet chocolate, double boiler, adding butter and honey till melted. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the filling except with some butter added. Yeah. 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 It sets up like a sort of like fudge. Remove the babka from the oven. Set aside to cool for 5 to 10 minutes until cool enough to touch. Place a clean kitchen towel on the counter. We're going to flip our babka out. Place right side up. And it comes out, slides out pretty easily. Yeah. Usually yeah. usually I think I line my pan with the parchment paper. Mm-hmm. And just so the parchment paper is like an inch up the long sides mm-hmm. on either side. So and can... then I use that to pull up the babka and put it down on the cooling rack. Yep. And it should sound hollow. It should definitely yep. sound hollow. Do we spoon the warm glaze on right away or do we let it? That's what you usually let it. Yeah, I usually spoon it on right away. Spoon the warm glaze over the top of the babka while still warm. Yeah. Wait for glaze to set before slicing about 20 minutes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just about a couple of other recipes from the book that I like. Oh, I'm just curious about. I feel you have to tell us about your salted caramel sticky buns, which you first made at Roberta's, which the New York Times loved. And at least when you wrote A Good Bake, you described it as an item that you were most known for. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah, definitely. Please, please, please tell us about them. They're this umami thing happening, and I I don't think I intentionally set out to make them that way. That's just sort of how they turned out. I think the first sticky bun recipe I tried at home— was from the Baking with Julia cookbook that was written in the 90s. And I think it was... With Dory, right? With Dory Greenspan, wrote the book. I think she got bakers to contribute to the book. I think it was Nancy Silverton's recipe. And I love the technique of laminating the dough with butter. I had not... I'm like, oh, it's a sticky bun and it's brioche and you're laminating the brioche. I'm like, that's brilliant. Tell people just in case they don't know, what when you say laminating the dough, what are we doing? Taking dough, so it could be like the babka dough where you've already got butter in the dough, and that's what brioche is. And then you're chilling it down, you're rolling it out a little bit, then you're putting a a piece of butter that you've rolled out on top of it, and you're folding dough over it. So you're enveloping the butter with the dough, 
and then you keep rolling it and folding it and rolling it and folding it so you have multiple layers, like it's a croissant, like multiple layers of yeasted dough and butter, and it, it lends to flakiness and deliciousness. I was just enamored with that technique with the sticky bun, and I wanted to do that at Roberta's. And I started playing around with different sizes. And then then I had to play around with the topping because I'm like, the topping at first came out too hard. And I'm like, this isn't good. It's too hard. And I think I finally settled on a right mix between how much dough to put into the cavity of each muffin tin. And then once they came out, like how, what was the topping like? Was it setting up too hard or was it soft? And it set up so it wasn't too hard and it wasn't too soft. I wanted you to just tell us about your secret ingredient in chocolate chip cookies, which is powdered sugar. Oh, yeah. And what that, what I thought yeah, that was. Yeah, the cornstarch, I think it helps the dough. It definitely helps the dough, like, have that crackly effect. Yeah, well, it's funny. There's, um, I've even done a recipe tip video about adding a little bit of cornstarch ah. to a chocolate chip cookie for this chewiness that I oh, think yes. it imparts. Yes, I think so, But too. I think that's so clever and maybe even easier for people to just use a little bit of confectioner sugar, yeah. which has the cornstarch yeah. in it anyway. Yeah. I thought that was really great. And then I know your brownie recipe is loosely <laughs> based on like an old Alice Medrick recipe. Yes. But I also love that you're baking at 400 degrees, which is a little high for brownies. Can you t- just that's tell us? That, that's from the Alice Medrick recipe. Yeah. And I think she called it the Steve method. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that in the recipe. Yeah. And she had this little tiny book became my favorite. It had all sorts of brownies and bar recipes in it. And this was like the classic one. And she was describing her friend Steve who baked it too hot one time. And I think it wasn't on purpose and pulled them out. And then he's like, oh, like tried to cool them down fast in like a bowl of ice water or the bottom of it. And I think I just started making that recipe, literally was making the recipe at home in the 90s. Yeah. And it just kept turning out. It was so good. And I'm like, I, I think I might have done away with putting it in the, the thing with the ice water. Yeah. But I kept the baking at 400 and I kept the baking time the same. I also wonder if you could, in a kind of half-assed-ish way, stick it in the freezer or stick it in the refrigerator yeah, when it's hot. Yeah, I've tried different things. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. Tried. I don't even know if I do that anymore. I think it still turns out just yeah. fine and good. It's interesting, too, because when I think of Alice's famous brownie recipe, I think probably via Food 52, but it's her all-cocoa brownie. Oh, okay. Is one that I feel like people talk about and mimic because it's this interesting brownie. I don't think I've made that oh, one. Oh, it's, I it's make, really good. So it got stuck on this one. Yeah. I haven't veered away. Yeah, it's really good without any melted chocolate. So oh, I nice. kind of love it because I like things that are really easy. Yeah, and that's easy. Fewer ingredients and no melting of. Yeah, so I think you have it's, to find the, unsalted, yeah. the unsweetened chocolate to make these brownies. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me today, Melissa. And I just want to say that you are my cherry pie. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Plugra Premium European-Style Butter, California Prunes, and Ghirardelli for their support. Don't forget to subscribe to She's My Cherry Pie on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and tell your baking buddies about us. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network and is recorded at CityVox Studio in Manhattan. Our producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. Thank you so much for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking.